Warning! Binge Mode contains adult content. That's right. Adult content comes in many forms. So if that's not your thing, please check out Bachelor Party. Bachelor Party, where it's only PG-13. Because Juliet keeps asking for more sex on The Bachelorette. (laughs) One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know what impact Butterbeer has on house elves, please proceed with extreme caution. And now Binge Mode. We have heard the evidence against you. The four of you stand accused of capturing an aura, Frank Longbottom, and subjecting him to the Cruciatus Curse, believing him to have knowledge of the present whereabouts of your exiled master, he who must not be named. Father, I didn't! Shrieked the boy in the chains below. I didn't! I swear it! Father, don't send me back you to the You are directors. further accused! Bellowed Mr. Crouch. Of using the Cruciatus Curse on Frank Longbottom's wife! When he would not give you information! You plan to restore he who must not be named to power and to resume the lives of violence you presumably led while he was strong. I now ask the jury. Screamed the boy below, and the wispy little witch beside Crouch began to sob, <laughs> rocking backward and forward. Mother, stop him. M- mother, I didn't do it. It wasn't I me. I now ask the jury, shouted Mr. Crouch, to raise their hands if they believe, as I do, that these crimes deserve a life sentence in Azkaban! Hello! Yeah! And welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter! I'm Mallory Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished listing every candy on the Honeyduke's shelves in order to gain entrance to Dumbledore's office, it's Ringer staff writer, your headmaster, Jason Concepcion. Mal, hmm. you've always struck me as a cockroach cluster type. Thank you. I wish we, <laughs> I wish we had some here because it's time for Binge Mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you dream of candy or eagle owls, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate and review us. Five points. And stars for Binge Mode. Please also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode a.k.a. The Underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is just for Binge Mode fans. Yes. And which is an excellent place to recount your recollections of the magical trials of yesteryear. Last week on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we explored how maturation shapes chapters 21 through 26 of Goblet of Fire. And on today's episode, we are diving into chapters 27 through 30 of Goblet. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep on details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Wide canon. Taking the entire series Mm. into account from the moment we visit Padfoot in his cave. Wonderful. Love it there. Yes. So many rats. So touch your nose to that silvery sheen. Not the rats, to be clear. That would be gross. The sheen in the pensive. Right. Because it's time to dive into some memories. Mal, I sometimes find, and I'm sure you know the feeling, that I simply have too many thoughts and memories crammed into my mind. Indeed. So let's uncram things by offering up a brief refresher on what actually happened in Goblet Chapters 27 to 30 by climbing aboard this Scarlet Steam Engine of Plot the Hogwarts Express. Yes! Second task finished! Yes. But there's no relief in sight. 
Serious returns to Harry's life and Rita Skeeter's broadsides turn decidedly tabloid in tone. Turn, he says. Well, <laughs> come on. The mystery of Barty Crouch's disappearance grows more confounding when he stumbles out of the Forbidden Forest, completely out of his wits, and then just as quickly vanishes again. In Divination, Harry has a disturbing vision about Voldemort that sends pain shooting through his scar once more. My dear. (laughs) And Harry encounters Dumbledore's powerful pensive, visits secret memories left long buried. Please check out the restricted section for more. Ooh. Jason. Yeah. Curiosity is not a sin, but we should exercise caution with our curiosity. Yes, indeed. And that gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters 27 through 30 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire is Secrets of the Past. Dun, 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 dun. Chapter 27, Padfoot Returns. No secret that in the past, Ron has been thirsty for a taste of glory. Something more than just mere recognition by association. Remember what he saw in the Mirror of Erised, as Dumbledore put it. Quote, himself standing alone, the best of all of them. Being Harry's friend has granted Ron uncommon celebrity and access. Sure. How many other students can say they've conquered McGonagall's chessboard and won 50 points for their house? How many can say they went into the Chamber of Secrets? How many can say they survived nearly losing a leg to an unfortunate animagus bite? Kept that one quiet, of course. The list goes on and on. But the underbelly of this is that Ron is never really the leading man in these stories. Perhaps counterintuitively, standing so close to the spotlight so often makes the inches between Ron and the center of that shining beam stand out even more starkly in his mind. For Ron, proximity can be a burden as much as a boon. He'll never be as famous as Harry Potter, or as accomplished, or as central, and he knows it. This is the jealous tension that fueled their falling out after Harry's name emerged from the Goblet of Fire. It is utterly unsurprising, then, Mm -hmm. that Ron is milking his 15 minutes of newfound fame following the second task (laughs) as ferociously as Wormtail milks Nagini. He he was going (laughs) to fucking whoop those mermen's ass. Just ask him. But it was like, you know, he didn't want to ruin the whole thing. And it was like, you know, but he was ready to do it if necessary. Quote. Harry noticed that Ron's version of events changed subtly with every retelling. Subtly. In italics. <laughs> they keep growing more dramatic, more sensational each time. Padma? Ron's Yule Ball date? A lot keener. I'm being around Ron now. Hermione's having a tougher time as the masses are teasing her mercilessly for being the thing that Crumb, that Vic the Dick, would miss yeah. the most. First of all, what else is he going to pick? He's in this strange land. The classmate who dribbles food down his front? I don't think so. Not a lot of choices for Crumb here. Second, the students being more inclined to cheer Ron's bullshit people kidnapping tale than Hermione mattering to the Wizarding World's LeBron might be the single least explicable thing that has happened in this story to date. What's wrong with these people? <laughs> Meanwhile, the changing weather and rising winds brings Sirius's reply with instructions on a meeting time and location in Hogsmeade, and a request for food. Mm. My guy's famished. Harry's worried that Sirius has returned. He's not facing dementors around every bend as he was in year three, but he's still a wanted man, and there's only a handful of people that actually know that (laughs) Sirius is innocent. Unless the secrets that define Pettigrew and Sirius's past come to light for all to see, Sirius will continue 
to have to operate in the shadows. And Harry will continue to have to worry about his safety, wondering whether he and his godfather will ever be able to find normalcy and peace. Spoiler. No. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> tough one there. Oh, very tough stuff. The idiots in school are a distraction from these bigger considerations. And with the prospect of seeing Sirius on his mind, Harry and co. head to potions. We're Malfoy, Pansy, Crab, Goyle, ready to stir the shit. They're holding a copy of the magazine Witch Weekly, one of Jason's favorite publications, which contains an article entitled Harry Potter's Secret Heartache, which must be said, great display. It's really good. Wonderful like, display. Uh, like that is, I'm <laughs> clicking on that. Me too. <laughs> Um, 10 out of 10, 10 I want click. Clicking on it. <laughs> Has an enterprising young blog boy broken down the X's and O's of Harry's first and second task tactics with the aid of QuidditchReference.com? Has a gifted investigative reporter attempted to stitch together the myriad mysterious happenings, which all point toward Voldemort's rise in Harry's mortal peril? Of course not, guys. Come on. Rita Skeeter, out here trying to make her nut one fabricated bit of bullshit at a time. Because people like Jason will read it all. Right. Quote, Miss Granger, a plain but ambitious girl. Tough. That's <laughs> savage. Unnecessary. But that's why you read Skeeter. <laughs> I can see Juliet right now, man, sharing in Slack the latest page six from Rita Skeeter. <laughs> totally. Seems to have a taste for famous wizards that Harry alone cannot satisfy. The article goes on to shred Hermione, painting her in Ron's words as, quote, some sort of, of scarlet woman. Hermione's run-in with Rita left both parties determined to dig up the dirt, the past secrets on the other. But Rita's sloppy here. This is so hurried, so off, that it doesn't even face Hermione. Quote, if that's the best Rita can do, she's losing her touch, said Hermione, still giggling, and she threw Witch Weekly onto the empty chair beside her. What a pile of old rubbish. Our girl, though? She doesn't just have a taste for famous wizards. She has a taste for deliberate, methodical action. When she makes her move on Rita... It won't be an opening salvo. It will be a decisive blow. One funny thing, though. Hermione is a bit unnerved that Rita has details from her private conversations with Vicky the Dicky, who <laughs> did ask her to visit him over the summer Ooh. and who did say, I'd never felt this way before. Ooh. And what did you say? Said Ron, who had picked up his pestle and was grinding it on the desk a good six inches from his bowl because he was looking at Hermione. Oh, Ron. Even after their Yule Ball row, Hermione and Ron have so much left unsaid. So many secret feelings waiting to breathe freely at last. No one can breathe freely in this clasp, however, because Snape, seeing the magazine, proceeds with a dramatic reading of the article, concluding with, how very touching, <laughs> and separating the trio so you can keep your minds on your potions rather than on your tangled love lives. Incredible. Tangled love lives, of course, are the fuel of Snape's secret past and secret present. Was it that tangled, though? It was kind of like a straight line, which did not intersect at all with <laughs> Guess Snape. maybe he would have liked <laughs> right. it to be more there's, tangled. There's zero tangling <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> so this is rich in, in so many respects. Snape moves Harry to the front, where he prods and pokes him, trying to goad him into a response that Harry will regret. Snape calls him a, quote, pint-sized celebrity and accuses him of breaking into his office. Don't lie to me, Snape hissed, his fathomless black eyes boring into Harry's. Boomslang skin, gillyweed, both come from my private stores and I know who stole them. Ah, so many secrets of the past here. Now, Hermione did steal Boomslang skin from Snape, but that was all the way back in their second year when they were making Polyjuice Potion to try to find out if Malfoy was the heir of Slytherin. Harry did not steal it this year, but his 
and our knowledge of the ingredients use in Polyjuice Potion is a huge clue here for us. Whoever's breaking into Snape's office now might be making Polyjuice again. Of course, that's exactly what's happening with Bardi. We will find out later. Harry even finds himself thinking later in this exchange with Snape, maybe he'll start pulling a Moody and only drinking out of a private hip flask because he's worried Snape is going to slip him some truth serum. Just another amazing clue here from JKR. Dobby, naturally, stole the gillyweed for Harry after Bardi staged a conversation about it with McGonagall. Again, we'll learn this later. Is this the end of the exchange with Harry and Snape, however? Naturally not. Snape pulls out a small bottle of clear liquid. Quote, it is Verida serum, a truth potion so powerful that three drops would have you spilling your innermost secrets for this entire class to hear. Snape says that its use is tightly controlled by the ministry, but make sure to mention, Harry, my hand could slip. You never know. Snape may ultimately be trying to protect Harry, as we'll learn at the series end. That has never meant and will never mean that he likes him. Snape still sees too much of James and his past heartache when he looks at Harry and still feels that Harry has gotten away with far too much since he's come to Hogwarts, a feeling exacerbated tenfold, maybe a hundredfold, by Sirius's escape at the end of Prisoner of Azkaban to genuinely believe here that Harry had nothing to do with the break-in. Karkaroff comes into the class. What the f- Subtle. Real subtle. (laughs) He's demanding a conversation with Snape and speaking so as not to be overheard. Like, yeah, I hate to tell you this, but this is highly irregular. And you now have like 30 students (laughs) trying to listen to this because this is weird. But Harry is close by. Handy. I want to talk now while you can't clip off, Severus. You've been avoiding me. Harry notes that Karkaroff looks worried and Snape looks angry. Karkaroff hangs around all lesson so as not to let Snape Get away. And Harry, determined to eavesdrop, intentionally knocks over his armadillo bile at the end of class, giving him an excuse to duck down and clean up while everyone else leaves. Harry sees Karkaroff pull up the left-hand sleeve of his robe and show Snape his forearm. His forearm. It's never been this clear. Never. Since, put it away, snarled Snape, his black eyes sweeping the classroom. But you must have noticed, Karkaroff began in an agitated voice. This, we'll learn, is, of course, the dark mark, the brand of Voldemort. Talk about a secret of the past, a literal mark on one's body, preventing a person from ever completely moving on from their pledge they made to the Dark Lord. The mark, which Voldemort will eventually use to summon his followers to the graveyard when he regains his body, is growing clearer. As he gains strength, a burning reminder that the choice these people made in their past is about to define their futures as well. There is so much Harry wants to discuss with Sirius as he, Ron and Hermione set off a dozen chicken legs, a loaf of bread and a flask of delicious pumpkin juice in their bag. Jason and I had some pumpkin juice at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Delicious. They see Sirius in his padfoot form waiting for them at the foot of the mountains. He leads them up into a dimly lit cave where Dear sweet Buckbeak also awaits. Great to see you, Bucky. Sirius transforms back into a man, and Harry observes that he's looking much worse than when Harry saw him in the fire a few months back, before the first task. Sirius is famished, saying he's been living mostly off rats and tearing into the food they brought him. They scan the newspapers that Sirius has in the cave. One leads with Crouch's mysterious illness, the other with Bertha's disappearance, which has finally... finally warranted the Minister of Magic's personal involvement. Nice of you to catch up, Corn. When Hermione mentions Crouch sacking Winky, Sirius is highly interested. Harry runs through what happened with the elf at the Quidditch World Cup. Sirius posits that Harry's wand might have been stolen from the top box. We will learn, eventually, that he is right. Invisibarty. 
when they run through the list of people who are also in the top box and get to Bagman, (laughs) Harry notes that Bagman keeps offering to help him with his tasks. Sirius considers this highly notable. Hermione keeps mentioning Crouch's unfairness to Winky. And Ron keeps telling Sirius that Hermione is obsessed. But Sirius says that Hermione has the measure of it better than Ron. Quote, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors, not his equals. We'll talk about that line a little bit more later. Can we ever really know another person? Can we ever really be sure what's in someone else's heart, what's in someone else's head? Maybe, maybe not. But we can see how people behave. We can see Mm -hmm. how they treat those around them and what secrets those actions might point to. Sirius senses something here, and rightly so. Crouch didn't dismiss Winky just because he was cruel, though clearly he is. He did it because he had secrets in his past to protect. As we will learn over the course of the book, smuggling his son out of Azkaban, keeping him hidden and controlled, using the Imperious Curse, modifying and then corrupting Bertha Jorgen's memory after she discovered Barty Jr. at home, bringing his son to the Quidditch World Cup as a little treat. Winky must keep her master's secrets. As Dobby told us, it is another mark of the house elves' enslavement, and Crouch's actions stemmed from the threat of discovery, from a worry over trust. Sirius says that none of this sounds like Crouch. Harry asks, do you know him? (laughs) Oh, I know Crouch all right. He was the one who gave the order for me to be sent to Azkaban without trial. Sirius explains that Crouch used to be the head of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement and was on the path to becoming minister. He takes them back to what it was like during Voldemort's first rise to power, a time that brought out, as he says, the best in some people, the worst in others. Crouch chose to fight violence with violence, authorizing the use of unforgivable curses against suspects. I'm with it. I agree with <sighs> of it. I'm you sorry. Are. <laughs> like, <laughs> if we would have wiped these motherfuckers out the first time, we wouldn't be here. That's all I have to say. I believe in due process, uh-huh. also. Yes. I'm just saying. Clearly. <laughs> This tracks, as we'll learn, because he used one against his own son for years from the book. I would say he became as ruthless and cruel as many on the dark side. He was on the rise. But then something rather unfortunate happened. Crouch's own son was caught with a group of Death Eaters who'd managed to talk their way out of Azkaban. Apparently, they were trying to find Voldemort and return him to power. Our trio is stunned from the book. A nasty little shock for old Barty, I'd imagine. Should have spent a bit more time at home with his family, shouldn't he? Ought to have left the office early once in a while, gotten to know his own son. That's Maybe that's why the Weasleys are so such a wonderfully bunch. Arthur's always home. He's just (laughs) clocking out bright and early. Sun high in the sky. Sirius says he doesn't know if Crouch's son was actually a Death Eater, but that he'd bet his life those he was caught with, the Lestranges, as we later learn, were. And He's right. Yes. He's right. Hermione asks if Crouch got his son off. Quote from Sirius. I thought you had the measure of him, Hermione. There was a trial, we learned, but, quote, by all accounts, it wasn't much more than an excuse for Crouch to show how much he hated the boy. Then he sent him straight to Azkaban. He gave his own son to the Dementors, asked Harry quietly. Here it is. Another secret of the past for us as readers revealed. This is what Crouch meant back in the woods after the Quidditch World Cup when he said, I trust you remember the many proofs I have given over a long career that I despise and detest the dark arts and those who practice them. He was talking about sending his own child away. Sirius says he saw the boy brought into Azkaban. Couldn't have been more than 19. Quote, he was screaming for his mother by nightfall. He went quiet after a few days, though. They all went quiet in the end except when they shrieked in their sleep. Okay. 
So he's still an ask man, Harry asks? No, says Sirius. He died about a year after they brought him in. Crouch and his wife, Sirius explains, were allowed a deathbed visit. Quote, that was the last time I saw Barty Crouch, half carrying his wife past my cell. She died herself, apparently, shortly afterward. Grief. Wasted away just like the boy. Crouch never came for his son's body. The Dementors buried him outside the fortress. I watched them do it. We will learn during Barty Jr.'s confession that this is when the polyjuice-aided swap of Crouch's son and wife occurred. After this, Sirius continues, Crouch fell from grace, with many feeling sympathetic for the son following his death and wondering how a boy from a good family could have gone so badly astray. Sirius says Crouch probably thinks he can get it all back by catching one more Death Eater. Then again, showing excellent detective skills, says Crouch sneaking in the dead of night to search Snape makes no sense. If you wanted to do that, come to the tournament. Use it as cover. Hermione notes that Dumbledore trusts Snape. Oh, give it a rest, Hermione, said Ron impatiently. Come on. I know Dumbledore's brilliant and everything, but that doesn't mean a really clever dark wizard couldn't fool him. He's wrong about Snape, but he's actually right about the substance of this statement, which he's offering not in good faith because he just wants to basically like disagree with everything Hermione says anyway. (laughs) But whatever, he's right. But that is exactly what's happening right now with Bardai Moody. Sirius says he's not sure why Dumbledore hired Snape, who was part of a league of Slytherins who nearly all became Death Eaters from the book. But as far as I know, Snape was never even accused of being a Death Eater. I mean, look at the arm. Can we look at the arm? This is interesting to think about because, of course, it's not true. He was a Death Eater. He was an absolute Death Eater. Him turning spy for Dumbledore doesn't change that fact. And yet it all appears that this is not widely known. Again, we have to consider, why isn't it more widely known who was in Voldemort's circle and when and why? When Harry launches into the exchange he witnessed between Karkaroff and Snape, Sirius says, he showed Snape something on his arm? Said Sirius, looking frankly bewildered, he ran his fingers distractedly through his filthy hair, then shrugged again. Well, I've no idea what that's about. (laughs) Here we have further proof, and this is quite stunning in actuality, that the Dark Mark branding was not widely known. I I mean, it suggests that Death Eaters, one, did not talk about this, Mm -hmm. and two, that the Ministry either kept that information to a tightly held circle or didn't know, which is stunning stuff. From the book again, there is still the fact that Dumbledore trusts Snape, and I know Dumbledore trusts where a lot of other people wouldn't, but I just can't see him letting Snape teach at Hogwarts if he'd ever worked for Voldemort. Of course, this will be a huge source of tension between Harry and Dumbledore moving forward after Harry learns that Snape was, in fact, a Death Eater. In fact, a huge source of energy propelling our story forward. Yes. But until the prince's tale, neither Harry nor us nor anyone but Snape and Dumbledore can know about this, his love for Lily and his role in sharing part of the prophecy with Voldemort, thereby leading to Lily's death. We can't yet know the secret that led to Snape's promise. We can't yet know the moment that changed the course of his entire life. Sirius asked Ron to ask Percy about Crouch, and then asked the group to try to find out anything they can about Bertha. The article he read featured Bagman, quote, blustering on about Bertha's bad memory, but Sirius notes that doesn't mesh at all with his memory of Bertha from school. Quote, the Bertha I knew wasn't forgetful at all. Quite the reverse. She was a bit dim. (laughs) That's uncharitable. But she had an excellent memory for gossip. What changed to make Bertha lose her memory? 
We'll learn in time. Another secret of the past waiting to be uncovered. Chapter 28, The Madness of Mr. Crouch. Secrets, as we've seen, are heavy burden. Just look at poor Winky, who our trio sees when going down to the kitchens to give Dobby his thank you for that life-saving gillyweed present from the book. She had allowed herself to become so filthy that she was not immediately distinguishable from the smoke-blackened brick behind her. Her clothes were ragged and unwashed. She was clutching a bottle of butterbeer and swaying slightly on her stool, staring into the fire. Rough, rough stuff. Harry tries to get information about Mr. Crouch from her, mentioning that he's ill and has stopped turning up to events, but this just sends Winky deeper into her tailspin. Freedom has her unmoored. And still, she keeps her former master's secrets, though in keeping these, crucially, she's also revealing, as he has them, she says as much through butterbeer hiccups. Master is <coughs> trusting Winky with <laughs> the most important, the most secret. Harry is intrigued, but Winky says little more before blacking the fuck out and getting covered with a blanket. Like a mess. Pass the butterbeer, Wink. Also, like, who knew that butterbeer fucked with house elves that hard? Strong stuff for Winky. Hermione might have preferred to pass out than be in the Great Hall to receive her mail, which is full of hate and undiluted boobatuber pus, following Rita's Witch Weekly article. Commiserating later with Hagrid, we will learn that he also got hate mail following Rita's expose. An example of this? You're a monster and you should be put down. Wow, just awful. Whether Rita is spreading truth or lies at a given moment, what she puts out into the world becomes, in the mind of many of her readers, again, whether or not it's true, secrets unearthed, secrets that people deserve to pay for. Too bad they can't pay in leprechaun gold. Not only is the Niffler lesson in Caramagical Creatures a ruckus good time, it leads Hagrid to reveal that the treasure won't last. Shouts to Nifflers, by the way, one of the best parts of the first Fantastic Beast movie. Really cute. They were a lot cuter than I was Just expecting, actually. Darling. Just darling. This discovery about the gold leads to one of our most painful Harry and Ron moments, even though they're on good terms again at this point. Remember, Ron paid Harry back for the Omnioculars in the leprechaun gold that rained down on them at the cup. He asked Harry, after hearing this from Hagrid, why he never told him that the gold vanished. Quote, Harry had to think for a moment before he realized what Ron was talking about. He tells Ron he never noticed it was gone. Quote, must be nice, Ron said abruptly when they had sat down and started serving themselves roast beef and Yorkshire puddings. To have so much money, you don't notice if a pocket full of galleons goes missing. Harry's like, it is actually great. It's great. You should He's, try it. He channels his inner Tom, <laughs> Tom Wamsgans, by saying, you know the thing about being rich? It's great. It's fucking great. It's fucking great. Now eat this rare bird. <laughs> Ron tells Harry that he shouldn't have given Ron a Christmas gift. And then he spears a potato and adds, and this is this is really heart-wrenching, I hate being poor. Now, that's not a secret, but it is a part of Ron's past, and it's a part of his history with Harry. It's a part of his family. It's a part of his future. It's a part of his present day. It is a defining factor in how he thinks about life. You know what they say. You give a man jinxed candies, <laughs> and his nose will bleed for a day. <laughs> You teach a man how to make jinxed candies, and you can open a shop. (laughs) Harry's life remains centered on the tournament, and finally, one day after Easter, the champions meet Ludovic Bagman at the Quidditch pitch to discuss the third task. It's covered in hedges, the foundation of a maze. The Triwizard Cup 
quad wizard cup, let's be fair, will be placed in the center of this maze, Bagman says. The first champion to touch it will receive full marks. The maze will... Well... (laughs) (laughs) Receive something. And how? The maze will contain obstacles, of course, creatures and spells. The champions will enter the maze based on their current standing, Harry and Cedric first, then Crumb, then Floor, who we will discuss in a bit. I got a take coming on this. Maybe next episode. It is a take. And it is a fair take. As everyone's... Heading back up to the castle, Vic the Dick asks, Harry, may I speak with you? (laughs) (laughs) They walk toward the forest because they don't want to be overheard. I want to know, he said, glowering. This is great. What there is between you and Harami Onini. (laughs) Oh, my God. And Harry's just like, only this dick, my guy. Only Bofa. What is Bofa? (laughs) Harry stares up at Crumb in amazement. He tells Crumb that he and Hermione, Hermione Nini, are just friends. We're just friends. But the dick is nervous. Hermione Nini talks about you very often. If I'm Harry, I'm like, she does? Harry can't believe he's having this conversation with LeBron James. (laughs) Finally, reassured, Crumb tells Harry, You fly very well. I was watching at the first task. Harry repays the compliment by bringing up the Ronsky feint. But then something catches their attention and a haggard man emerges from the woods. It's the influential head of the Department of International (laughs) Magical Cooperation, Bartimius Crouch. And he is a fucking mess. Yes. From the book. He looked as though he had been traveling for days. The knees of his robes were ripped and bloody. His face scratched. He was unshaven and gray with exhaustion. His neat hair and mustache were both in need of a wash and trim. His strange appearance, however, was nothing to the way he was behaving. Muttering and gesticulating, Mr. Crouch appeared to be talking to someone that he alone could see. Crouch's babbling is disturbing. Disturbing. Even with a comedic touch dotted in, he's still referring to Percy as Weatherby. Great stuff. Not so great otherwise. The first thing that Harry picks up are clearly about preparations for the Triwizard Tournament. Crouch is saying something about Madame Maxine. Karkaroff, how many students each will be bringing. Then, fighting off what we will realize soon are the effects of the Imperious Curse, he becomes a bit more lucid. And it's clear that some great secret hangs over his conscience. Harry and Crumb lean in. They are alarmed. Crumb is particularly alarmed. He's like, get me the fuck out of here. I got endorsements to think about. I got Hermione waiting for me. I'm trying to lay with Hermione Ninny for a minute. What is this? (laughs) I've done stupid thing. Mr. Crouch breathed. He looked utterly mad. His eyes were rolling and bulging, and a trickle of spittle was sliding down his chin. Every word he spoke seemed to cost him terrible effort. Must tell Dumbledore. Crouch asks Harry if he's his, and it's clear in hindsight that he's speaking of Voldemort and his son and their plans. Crouch fades in and out of lucidity. While conversing with a tree, he mentions obliquely a secret we just learned about from Sirius. Something about his son. Yes, my son recently gained 12 owls. Barty Jr., we learned from this, was a talented young wizard, it seems. Then, as Harry is leaving to fetch Dumbledore, Crouch shifts again into this kind of barely lucid mania. I escaped. Must warn. Must tell. See, Dumbledore. My fault. All my fault, Bertha. Dead. 
Oh, my fault, my son. My fault, tell Dumbledore. Harry Potter, Dark Lord, stronger. You need a powerful will to fight against the Imperious Curse. Yes. And Barty is, as we've heard, a powerful wizard. But don't discount the power of guilt here. The burden of guilt is magnified by secrecy. And now Crouch is fighting like a fury against one of the most terrible curses known to wizarding kind just to get it off his chest. Yes. He knows what his choices have led to, what his secrets might now cost not only him, but the entire wizarding world, the entire world in general. Harry leaves Crouch with Vic the Dick, goes to fetch Dumbledore. He runs into Snape. Harry is frantic. He is desperately trying to reach Dumbledore, trying to get help for Crouch. He tells Snape Crouch is ill. He needs to see Dumbledore. But just as Snape is denying Harry aid, relishing watching Harry squirm, Dumbledore appears, thank God. Harry leads the way, telling him that Crouch mentioned him and his son and Bertha and Voldemort growing stronger. Indeed, said Dumbledore. Dumbledore seems alarmed when Harry mentions leaving Crouch with Crumb, which is notable, yet another shadow over Karkaroff and his entire Durmstrang brute. When they reach the spot where Harry left Crouch and Crumb, Crouch is gone. Crumb is unconscious, stunned. Dumbledore summons Hagrid with, quote, something silver. Another description, quote, like a ghostly bird. Exposure for us here to Patronuses being used as messengers. Dumbledore revives Crumb, who says that Crouch attacked him from behind. Ah, from behind, so we didn't see. Hagrid arrives. Dumbledore asks him to get Karkaroff and Moody. But Moody's already there. Of course he is. Because it's Barty Jr. We will learn during Junior's confession that he was there witnessing this whole scene under an invisibility cloak after seeing his father appear on the map. Harry, hang on to your possessions, my guy. When Harry went to get Dumbledore, Bardi stunned Crumb and killed Crouch, killed his father. Dumbledore tells Moody, back in this moment in the present, that it's essential they find Crouch, and Bardi limps off into the forest where, we will learn in his later confession, he turned his father's body waiting under his cloak into a bone and buried it. Quite an end. Damn. For Barty Sr. That is some Shakespeare stuff. I mean, like, Fang is going to dig that up and eat it. I mean, it's like, that is biblical shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, wow. When the Durmstrang headmaster arrives, we're treated to a conversation that hints at his dark past. I smell double dealing and corruption in this whole affair. You, Dumbledore, you. With your talk of closer international wizarding <laughs> links, of rebuilding old ties, of forgetting old differences... The differences between Death Eaters and non-Death Eaters will realize, once Karkaroff's secret pass is finally made clear, he spits at Dumbledore's feet, and Hagrid is like, uh-uh-uh-uh. No, 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 no. I love this moment. Hagrid the- It's just instinctual. Yeah. No, 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 no. <laughs> Hagrid the enforcer, the Oakley to <laughs> Dumbledore's Michael Jordan. <laughs> Apologize, he says. Dumbledore instructs Hagrid to escort Harry back to the common room, telling him pointedly that any letters can wait until morning, and Hagrid naturally spills. Worried. I don't know. When I seen Dumbledore more worried than he's been lately. <laughs> this is both terrifying and weirdly reassuring. Terrifying because if Dumbledore, the greatest wizard of, of all time, is worried, we should definitely be worried. Yes. <laughs> time to freak out. <laughs> yes. Reassuring because this means, like Sirius, Dumbledore is not asleep at the wheel. Yeah. He sees the signs, sees the red flags waving. He doesn't know everything at book's end. When Barty is revealed, and as we'll be reminded of time and again over the series, but he knows much more than most. He has his own secrets, of course, and he knows the secrets of many, many others. And now, a brief break for a word from our sponsor. 
Vintage Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and excitement Ooh. of Universal's Islands of Adventure, Universal Studios Florida, uh. and Universal's Volcano Bay. There's a Universal Hotel for every style and budget. During our visit, we stayed at Lowe's Sapphire Falls Resort, and it was wonderful. Wonderful. From the stone turret in the mm. lobby to the inviting charm of each room and suite. Oh, yeah. You're surrounded by a haven. I love to be surrounded by a haven. <laughs> that is inspired by landmarks of the islands. Amid the beach area, palm trees, and pool, you'll find Caribbean-themed dining options, mm. including Strongwater Tavern, which offers rare vintage rooms. Delightful. Plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels, every morning you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour before other guests. Yeah! You can't forget about the unique dining experience at Universal City Walk that every member of your party will enjoy. We dine at NBC Grill and Brew with nearly 100 high-definition screens that immersed us in a stream of sports coverage. Expect much more than your average bar food as a mix of tasty classics and incredible new creations are on the menu. Still think about the giant pretzel. Delicious. I do. And no matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. And now, back to binge mode. Chapter 29, The Dream. Harry tells Ron and Hermione everything. As the three of them go to write to Sirius... They replay the events. Ron's only hope is that, as Harry noted, Crouch seemed out of his mind. So maybe him talking about Voldemort getting stronger is not a reason to worry. Uh, it's up there with <gasps> stick your head by the lake and be like, yo, give me the thing to the mer people and maybe they'll give it to you. Just awful stuff from Ron. <laughs> Ron is really not having a great book. <laughs> no. Harry is clear from the book. He was sanest when he was trying to talk about Voldemort. He was having real trouble stringing two words together, but that was when he seemed to know where he was and know what he wanted to do. Voldemort is really the ultimate secret of the past. The ministry and those in power are so traumatized by the events of the first Wizarding War that nearly every detail of those days is treated like, you know, something like a state secret. We learn more next chapter about those days, but one thing is clear now, the weight of the threat falls on Harry and his generation. That secrecy, and let's again note that many cannot even speak Voldemort's name. Right, most. Most is ostensibly to shield the younger generation from the horrors and the terrifying truth of what happened in those days. But the effect, the actual effect of that secrecy is instead of shielding them, it has left them disarmed and unready. Sirius, one of the people who wants to change that. And after Harry writes him to inform him about Crouch, Sirius responds by warning him, someone Dangerous is at the school. Stay frosty, my dude. Quote, your yes. name didn't get into the Goblet of Fire by accident. If someone's trying to attack you, they're on their last chance. I remember getting a chill reading yeah. that for the first time because he's right. He's right. Stay close to Ron and Hermione. Do not leave Gryffindor Tower after hours. That stuff's never been a problem with Harry before. It should be fine. Right. <laughs> uh, what? Me? After hours? What? What? <laughs> what? Excuse me? You sure you don't mean Whoa, Dennis Creevy? Excuse me, what? How dare you? <laughs> and arm yourself for the third task. Practice stunning and disarming. A few hexes wouldn't go amiss either. This is not dissimilar to the advice that Bardi gave shortly before Sirius's letter arrived, when he told Hermione and Ron to keep an eye on Harry 
help him prepare, issuing his signature constant vigilance line. Harry, this is great, he cannot believe the nerve of Sirius telling him to stay in bounds after all that Sirius and his fellow marauders got up to back at school. But Hermione, in a very sweet and sincere moment, notes Sirius is telling you this because he's really worried. And it is deeply touching to see these paternal instincts flowering inside of Sirius. As is so often the case with Harry, however, some of this is going to fall on deaf ears. Quote, no one's tried to attack me all year. Oh, Harry. No one's done anything to me at all. Listen, if someone tried to kill me, that's a thing that... (sighs) It would take more than the expiration of a calendar year (laughs) to make me feel good about it. Well, it's been... About 14 months since someone tried to murder me outright. Listen, I haven't seen my good friend Tom in ages. Dreams where they clearly discuss murdering me don't count. My good friend Tom. (laughs) Hermione, as usual, maintains perspective. She reminds Harry, someone put your name in, bud. Quote, and they must have done that for a reason, Harry. Snuffles is right. Maybe they've been biding their time. Maybe this is the task they're going to get you. Harry's still pushing, though. Why not just murder me in the edge of the forest then? Hermione says because then they couldn't have made it look like an accident. If you die during the third task, however, despite all of the sleuthing that Harry has done, despite what he saw in the dream at the beginning of the book, he doesn't know all of the secrets of the past. He doesn't have all of the information. He doesn't know that the plan actually has been not to kill him, but to keep him alive, to ensure that he reaches the cup. He must make it through the maze. He must touch the cup first. He must be in the graveyard so that Voldemort can be reborn with his blood. One thing nobody can argue about, it is time to train. Yes. Harry's working on stunning spells, which he's never never used before. (laughs) Nothing can top his one true love, Expelliarmus, of course, nor his Cheris Patronus. But it's amazing to think of how much imperative magic Harry learns in this fourth year. Stunning spells, summoning charms, the impediment curse. It'd be incredible to like do uh, a prior encanto on Harry's wand and just see like expel your arms, expel your arms, expel your arms, expel your arms. <laughs> it's not all practice time though. There's still class to attend, including divination with our boo. Love her. Trelawney. Mm. The heat and fumes in the room make Harry's head swim. He cracks a window for some air inadvertently, as we all realize, giving that naughty, naughty Rita in beetle form a chance to spy. This is not my favorite. Come on. I just, anyway. (laughs) He can hear an insect humming by the curtain. Trelawney begins. Today, however, will be be an excellent opportunity to examine the effect of Mars, for he is placed most interestingly at the present time. If you will all look this way, I will dim the lights. Mars, the god of war. Mars is bright tonight, the centaurs noted. Secret words back in Sorcerer's Stone. All the signs of Voldemort's rise are there for anyone to see. Just roll up a Death Eater's (laughs) sleeve and take a look at it, guys. Oh, with the fire and fumes raging and Trelawney just droning on, the breeze playing against his face, Harry lapses into sleep, as one does. Another dream. Another vision. He's riding on an eagle owl. We've seen eagle owls before. Harry recently spotted one just pages ago when we got this line. Quote, an eagle owl flew through the coil of smoke rising from Hagrid's chimney. It soared toward the castle around the owlery and out of sight. We also know that the Malfoys own an eagle owl. Hmm. Brings sweets from home for Draco. In the dream, the owl enters an ivy-covered house on a hill, bringing Voldemort a message. We hear Voldemort tell Wormtail, quote, Your blunder has not ruined everything. He is dead. This, we'll eventually realize, is news of Crouch's death. After Crouch, who Voldemort had placed under the Imperious Curse when he sprung Barty Jr., fought the curse, 
and escaped Wormtail's imprisonment. Now, we look back at when Wormtail was like, I'm not dumb, and then this happens, and it's like, oh, boy. <laughs> Quote, Nagini, said the cold voice, you are out of luck. I will not be feeding Wormtail to you after all. <gasps> Amazing. But never mind, never mind, there's still Harry Potter. Voldemort says Wormtail needs another reminder, though. The blunders will not be tolerated and hits him with the Cruciatus Curse, Jason's favorite. Wormtail, <laughs> Wormtail screams. And Harry does, too. He wakes. He's on the floor of the divination room, his eyes watering, his scar searing. Trelawney is loving it. She's yeah. so She's like, hyped. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> my dear, you are undoubtedly stimulated by the extraordinary clairvoyant vibrations of my room. <laughs> She is a legend. I actually just love Trelawney. Give me the Trelawney spinoff here's immediately. The, here's the thing. <laughs> Trelawney is only right like four times in 20 years, but they are a big four times. If you're willing to be very charitable, you can you can up that number. Can you? Sure. Yeah. I think it's like- What about tri- Neville's cups? Yeah, that's true. Here's the th- Yeah, so like two of them are like whatever, and the other two are like, oh shit. <laughs> but- no one can know the secret of the past that really triggers this connection between Harry and Voldemort. We won't know till the end of this series. The Horcrux that Voldemort never intended to make. Harry tells Trelawney that he has to go to the hospital. But Sirius had told him, if your scar hurts again, you know what to do. And Harry doesn't hesitate. He goes to see Dumbledore. After running through a list of candy that makes us <laughs> long for a return to the wizarding world of Harry Potter and Honeydukes, Harry lands on it. Cockroach cluster. Also... Dumbly, let's mix it up. Let's yeah. mix it up, my guy. A little predictable. You're the you're one of the most important people <laughs> in this world. Also, your memories are just waiting in there for anyone to explore. <laughs> yeah, there's so a you lot. Definitely need a better password. Yeah, I mean, Gryffindor's sword, the sword. Again. It's like, <laughs> can we just like lock this thing down? Protect Fox. Come on, guys. <laughs> Gargoyle springs to life, and Harry heads up, but he hesitates when he hears voices. Mm. It's Corn Fudge pushing back <laughs> against Dumbledore. I'm afraid I don't see the connection. I don't see it at all. He's talking about Bertha Jorkins and Barty Crouch, and as we'll soon learn, Frank's disappearances. Not only is Fudge unwilling to listen to reason, to see the signs, to see the truth, he displays a despicable prejudice by implying that Crouch, who vanished near Bobaton, Bobaton's carriage, could have been harmed by Madame Max. Corn, be better. Corn, do better, my guy. He says, Dumbledore, you know what that woman is? Which is... At- Actually despicable. Truly despicable. Foul. I consider her to be a very able headmistress and an excellent dancer, said Dumbledore quietly. Love him. What a wonderful moment for Dumbledore, one of many to be sure, but a reminder that of the kind heart and open mind that far more than his prodigious magical ability make him such a mentor and hero, especially in light of the secrets of his past that we'll learn about in Hallows, the prejudice and temptation that he himself had to learn to overcome. I think it is possible that it is you who are prejudiced, Cornelius, he says, and shouts to Dumbledore, but also do this more often, Dumbledore. People are spouting this shit like in your school all the time and it goes unmentioned. So maybe like like a speech or something, like can we just a little, let's be a little bit more proactive. That's all I'm saying. And not have it just be, you know, when a guy says some wild shit in front of you. That's all I'm saying. Chapter 30, The Pensive. This is an iconic chapter. What a it really, Fabulous. let me just, aside, blew my mind when I read this chapter. It's phenomenal. Bardai, seeing Harry through the door with his magical eye, lets Harry in. Sees him at the end of the prior chapter, lets him in here. It's only Harry's second time in Dumbledore's office. Kind of amazing to think about. Truly. Given how much time... 
Harry's been at school and how much time Harry will spend in that office when it's all said and done. Harry dunks on Fudge. He's like, well, you know, no reason to pretend I didn't overhear this. Quote, I didn't see Madame Maxime anywhere, though, and she'd have a job hiding, wouldn't she? Dumbledore smiled at Harry behind Fudge's back, his eyes twinkling. Great stuff from Harry there. Dumbledore tells Harry to wait for him in his office while he, Moody, and Fudge search the grounds. And as Harry's waiting, a patch of dancing light catches his eye, and he walks over to the cabinet from which that light is emerging. Quote, a shallow stone basin lay there with odd carvings around the edges, runes and symbols that Harry did not recognize. The silvery light was coming from the basin's contents, which were like nothing Harry had ever seen before. He could not tell whether the substance was liquid or gas. It was a bright, whitish silver, and it was moving ceaselessly. It's the Benson. We'll talk much more about the workings of this fascinating and utterly essential magical object in today's restricted section. But as for what it reveals to Harry here in this chapter, he knows enough about the magical world to be careful with a strange new object. But he still can't totally help himself. No. <laughs> He's like, well, I remember. I'll I just found look it. at it. I'll just look at it extremely closely. Nothing bad happened when I took the diary. This will be fine. Met my friend, Tom. (laughs) He prods the surface with his wand. The silvery material swirls and becomes transparent, and Harry finds that instead of looking at the bottom of this uh, basin, he's looking into a room as if looking into a room through a hole in the ceiling. He's looking, will come to realize, into a memory. He sees there an ominous scene, a dimly lit room that he thinks may be underground. Rows and rows and rows of observers around every wall, a chair in the middle with chains encircling the arms. As Harry's leaning in to try to see into the corners of this room, his nose touches the surface and he's plunged into the memory. He finds himself sitting on one of the benches. No one seems to have noticed him fall from the sky, just as Dippet didn't notice him when Harry plunged into that memory through the diary and chamber from the book. Unless he was very much mistaken, something of the sort had happened again. Harry waves his hand in front of the Dumbledore next to him and gets no reply. That settles it for Harry. This is a memory. But it's not that long ago. Dumbledore's got silver hair, just like today. Harry wonders where he is. Sadly, he's down in the courthouses, bowels of the ministry. An area he will become far too familiar with in Order of the Phoenix. As Harry waits, Dementors enter and place a man in the chair. Igor Karkaroff, black-haired, shaking. Crouch stands and begins the proceeding. Igor is there to trade information. Harry hears someone say filth and realizes that Moody, not yet with a magical eye, is beside Dumbledore. Moody and Dumbledore share a quick exchange in which they disagree about the Dementors. And we once again see Dumbledore positioned in rare air here. Karkaroff goes on to reveal something huge. Quote, we never knew the names of every one of our fellows. He alone knew exactly who we all That's good were. operational security by Voldemort. <laughs> good job, Dark Lord. It's true. Smart. This explains a bit, a bit more about how so many of Voldemort's supporters managed to escape detection and prosecution. Karkaroff continues. First name, Dalahov. And Crouch says they already have. Oh boy, not going well for Igor here. <laughs> Next, Rogier. Dead. Wait, he's he's got to start though for the Celtics. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming Kyrie's not healthy. <laughs> Next, Travers Mulciber in Ministry control already. Next, Rookwood. Ah, at last, Karkaroff has struck gold. Augustus Rookwood of the Department of Mysteries. Fabulous Order of the Phoenix. Tease here by J.K. Karkaroff has one more name to give. Severus Snape. Quote, Snape has been cleared by this council, said Crouch disdainfully. He has been vouched for by Albus Dumbledore. Karkaroff pushes, and then Dumbledore stands. Quote, Severus Snape was indeed a death eater. 
However, he rejoined our side before Lord Voldemort's downfall and turned spy for us at great personal risk. He is now no more a Death Eater than I am. This is a massive moment. Among the biggest possible secrets of the past coming to light at last for Harry, Snape was, really and truly was, a Death Eater, a servant of Lord Voldemort. No matter what Dumbledore tells Harry moving forward, Harry will never be able to shake this until the ultimate reveal in The Prince's Tale. We'll never be able to accept Dumbledore's reasons for trusting Snape because he doesn't know the reasons. And he won't until Snape dies and gives Harry his memories to watch in the pensive. Only then will he know the other more powerful secret of the past, Snape's love for Lily and the choice he made to honor her after her death. The dungeon dissolves and another memory springs up. It's a cheerful one this time. This is great. He sees young Rita. Mm. (laughs) Sucking that quill. No, she's not doing (laughs) Dumbledore's in different robes. Crouch looks tired from the book. Harry understood. It was a different memory, a different day, a different trial. The trial of Ludovic Bagman. What? <laughs> Ludo's uh, rather upbeat, considering he's on trial for his life. He's doing great. <clears throat> he says, well, I know I've been a bit of an idiot. He's accused of passing information to Voldemort's supporters, but he claims he did so unaware of what he was doing. Old Rookwood was a friend of my dad's. Never crossed my mind he was in with you-know-who. I thought I was collecting information for our side. He was just like, hey, tell me all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> Not only do no members of the jury vote to imprison him, because it's like, ooh, we've got a celebrity here. They get up and compliment him on his Quidditch play, which is, I'm sorry, but not wild. It is beneath the dignity of this courtroom for that to happen. I'm sorry. Unbelievable. It is honestly like shameful. It's absolutely shameful. And it is no wonder again that the ministry could not check the rise of Voldemort when this is what happens. They're like, Oh my, Oh, Oh, total accident. Mr. Bagman, may I have your autograph? Wild moment. Guess Harry's not the only one who too often has the aerial sport on his mind. Crouch, pissed off, sits by Dumbledore, says, The day Ludo Bagman joins us will be a sad day indeed for the ministry. Oh, well, guess what? <laughs> Bad news, bud. <laughs> How did, I, guess, I guess Crouch wasn't as influential as we thought because this guy got hired. And not only hired, put in charge of a fucking department? Department at Ludo Bagman. <laughs> very tough. <laughs> So at this point in time, Harry and the Rita will have to wonder, is this what Rita meant when she said she knew things about Bagman that would curl Hermione's hair? Or are there more secrets of the past waiting to surface? The dungeon changes again. Quote, the atmosphere could not have been more different. There is total silence other than the dry sobs of a woman sitting next to Crouch. The Dementors enter with four people, including, quote, a woman with thick, shining dark hair and heavily hooded eyes. Bella, what's up? Among the four as well, quote, a boy in his late teens who looked nothing short of petrified. He was shivering, his straw-colored hair all over his face, his freckled skin milk white. Man, I have such a vivid memory of reading this for the first time. I'm like flashing back now. Chilling stuff, honestly. Crouch looks down at them, quote, and there was pure hatred in his face. When he begins to speak, the straw-haired boy speaks too. Father, please. The gut punch of this moment, the first time you read it and realize what you're seeing. This is the trial that Sirius told us about. The trial when Crouch will send his own son to Azkaban. The crime that they're describing is heinous. He explains that the four of them 
as we reenacted at the top of this episode, are accused of capturing Aura Frank Longbottom and his wife and subjecting them to the Cruciatus curse because they thought they had information about Voldemort, who had already fallen at this point. His son is shrieking his innocence, but Crouch will not be stopped. He plows on, saying that they plan to restore he who must not be named to power, resume their lives of violence. And as this exchange is playing out, it hits us, hits the reader, hits Harry. They're talking about Neville's parents. This is why Neville reacted as he did when he learned about the Cruciatus Curse in Moody's class. Everyone on the jury, everyone, raises a hand to convict, and the boy screams, No! Mother, no! I didn't do it! I didn't do it! I didn't know! Don't send me there! Don't let him! As the Dementors remove their prey, the woman says that the Dark Lord will rise again. Quoth Bellatrix, Throw us into Azkaban. We will wait. He will rise again and will come for us. He will reward us beyond any of his other supporters. We alone were faithful. We alone tried to find him. And you know what? She is right. As the sun shrieks once more, Crouch says, you are no son of mine. And as Harry watches, transfixed, present-day Dumbledore pulls him out of the memory into his office. Harry apologizes for the intrusion. Sorry, I've been in your memories. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Tough stuff. And, and I couldn't help it sort of way. Dumbledore explains that the basin is called a pensive. In another subtle but masterful moment, the book says, Harry saw his own face change smoothly into Snape's as Dumbledore is sifting through his thoughts in the pensive, explaining to Harry how the object works, linking once more Harry and Snape in our minds. Yes. From the book, it's coming back. Cockroft's too stronger and clearer than ever, Snape says. This is memory, Snape says. Mm -hmm. This is a moment readers clung to after Half-Blood Prince when Snape's true allegiance was very much in question. Why would he have told Dumbledore this if he was actually Voldemort's? Harry I clung to this yes. like a life. I mean, raft. truly, like yeah. why? Harry apologizes again for intruding, an apology that carries more weight now that he realizes he's intruded into Dumbledore's memories. Memories that these two will spend a year exploring together in Prince as they search for the keys to undoing Voldemort. Dumbledore forgives Harry because Dumbledore, as we've been told, but will need the entire series to truly understand, believes in forgiveness in an uncommon way, having felt since his sister's death that he needed it himself. Curiosity is not a sin, tells Harry, but we should exercise caution with our curiosity. Yes, indeed. We cannot know it here, but the secrets in Dumbledore's own past, his history with Grindelwald and the Hallows and the quest for the greater good— heavily inform this statement, as do the secrets in other lives that Dumbledore has kept, like Snape's. Harry looks at Dumbledore's face, illuminated by the light of Bertha Jorkins now popping up from the pensive and things for the first time of Dumbledore as an old man. This is a heavy moment, the kind of moment that changes Harry's perception and that forces Harry and readers alike to really consider the weight that is on Dumbledore's shoulders, the weight of all these secrets, the weight of all this knowledge that he bears. Yeah. Harry tells Dumbledore about his dream, and Dumbledore tells Harry that he's also been corresponding with Sirius. He knows about the first dream that Harry had at the beginning of the book. And as they speak, Dumbledore is pacing, putting memory after memory, pulling it from his mind and putting it into the pensive. His knowledge is a burden, a burden that he cannot yet allow himself to relieve. He's still not being fully honest with Harry at this point. When Harry asks him why his scar hurts, Dumbledore says, quote, I have a theory, no more than that. It is my belief that your scar hurts both when Lord Voldemort is near you and when he is feeling a particularly strong surge of hatred. He says again that they're connected by the curse that failed, but shares nothing else that he knows or has begun to suspect about their connection. He says nothing of the prophecy here. Dumbledore asks if Harry saw Voldemort 
And Harry says, quote, but there wouldn't have been anything to see, would there? I mean, he hasn't got a body, has he? But, but then how could he have held the wand? Harry said slowly. How indeed, muttered Dumbledore. How indeed. Harry asks Dumbledore if he thinks Voldemort is getting stronger. Dumbledore shares what he labels as his suspicions. The last uh-huh. time Voldemort rose, Dumbledore says, was also marked by disappearances like Bertha's and Crouch and a host of muggle murders, we should also add, which he doesn't talk about at that particular time. He raises a third disappearance, Mr. Frank Bryce. The ministry is not taking it seriously, but Dumbledore has realized that Frank lived in the village where Voldemort's father grew up. Lived in the village. Lived at the fucking house. What are you talking <laughs> Harry has another question. The final trial, the one Dumbledore found him in, Were they talking about Neville's parents? Dumbledore gave Harry a very sharp look. Has Neville never told you why he has been brought up by his grandmother? He said. Harry shook his head, wondering as he did so how he could have failed to ask Neville this in almost four years of knowing him. I'll tell you how, Harry. Sometimes you got blinkers on, my guy. That's just a thing that happens sometimes. Also, it's like, you know, you got to say at 14, it's it. That would be it's weird sometimes to ask that at that age to be like, hey, so like, what's up with your parents? Are they like dead? I guess of all the kids who would do it, though, it would be Harry, given his background. That's true. This is an agonizing moment. Agonizing. Realizing that Neville has carried the secret. A secret that, as Jason just said, no one cared or even even thought to ask him to share. Dumbledore reveals the truth. Quote, yes, they were talking about Neville's parents. His father, Frank, was an Auror, just like Professor Moody. He and his wife were tortured for information about Voldemort's whereabouts after he lost his power, as you heard. So they're dead, said Harry quietly. No, said Dumbledore, his voice full of a bitterness Harry had never heard there before. They are insane. They are both in St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries. I believe Neville visits them. I'm going to cry. Brutal. With his grandmother during the holidays, they do not recognize him. Harry sat there horror struck. He had never known, never in four years, bothered to find out. This knowledge is agony. Another devastating link that Harry and Neville share. A secret pain that few can understand. Dumbledore explains how popular the Longbottoms were and also the extra fury that their case caused because it occurred after Voldemort's fall when people had finally begun to believe that they might be safe again. And Harry asks if Mr. Crouch's son really was involved. Dumbledore says, as to that, I have no idea. Harry asks about Bagman. Dumbledore says that he's never been accused of dark activity since. As he tries to pluck up the courage to ask about Snape, Snape's face appears in the pensive from the book. No more has Professor Snape. Harry must ask more. What made you think he'd really stopped supporting Voldemort, Professor? Dumbledore held Harry's gaze for a few seconds Uh. and then said, That Harry is a matter between Professor Snape and myself. One of the biggest secrets of the past of all. And you, like, I found myself reading this and wondering, okay, why... Why the why the moment of like is he thinking is he thinking of telling him is he thinking he of telling him or is he thinking does he know because he has been in the pensive always so many possibilities with Dumbledore really interesting pause there <sighs> Dumbledore Jason yeah it becomes easier to spot patterns and links you understand when they are in this form so please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know about this amazing magical object. The pensive. Pensives are large concave vessels, something between a dish and a bowl made of stone or metal, 
which are used to relive memories. They are powerful and rare magical items and certainly the most intimate magical objects we've seen yet. In fact, along with wands, pensives, because the memories placed within remain in the device, are usually buried with their owners, like wands. The Hogwarts pensive, however, belongs to the school. According to Pottermore, this ancient object is thought to predate Hogwarts and as such is an invaluable storage place for the wisdom and experiences of the school's many headmasters and headmistresses. Also, according to Pottermore, pensives are rare for two reasons. Only the most powerful wizards and witches use them and because most magical people fear them. It's easy to see why. Memories which are placed into the pensive can be fully explored by the viewer as if they were real. Every detail, every interaction can be viewed as if the person using the pensive was actually there. Let's explain that. There are three ways to use pensives, and we get them all in Goblin. The first is to gaze down as if looking through a window. We see this when Harry first encounters the device and he gazes down into it, seeing, quote, a room into which he seemed to be looking through a circular window in the ceiling. We'll see this method again in order when Harry looks into Snape's memories and sees the Great Hall. The drawback to this method are obvious. The user can only view memories from a top-down perspective. One can also select a single character from a memory and have that person rise out of the dish like a hologram. Dumbledore uses this to conjure the figure of the late Bertha Jorkins from the book. Frowning slightly, he prodded the thoughts within the basin with the tip of his wand. Instantly, a figure rose out of it, a plump, scowling girl of 16 who began to revolve slowly with her feet still in the basin. We'll see this again in order when Dumbledore raises Trelawney from the basin to recite the prophecy to Harry. And finally, the most dramatic way to use the pensive is to, as Harry does in chapter 30, lean close to the silver surface of the memories and Download yourself into them. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help it. From the book, the tip of his nose touched the strange substance into which he was staring. Dumbledore's office gave an almighty lurch. Harry was thrown forward and pitched headfirst into the substance inside the basin. But his head did not hit the stone bottom. He was falling through something, icy cold and black. It was like being sucked into a dark whirlpool. Boom, Harry finds himself sitting on a stone bench, able to observe in first person, as if he was there, the ministry's trials against accused dark wizards in the days after Voldemort's fall. How can a person see and hear things that the original owner of a memory missed at the time? Mm -hmm. I don't know, magic? <laughs> JKR stated in 2005 in an interview with the great Melissa Anelli that the user of a pensive experiences memories as reality. She said, the pensive recreates a moment for you so you could go into your own memory and relive things that you didn't notice at the time. It's somewhere in your head, which I'm sure... It is in all of our brains. I'm sure if you could access it, things you don't know you remember are all in there somewhere. So what happens to a memory when it's been pulled out of a person's head? Unclear. In Half-Blood Prince, Dumbledore tasks Harry with obtaining a memory from Horace Slughorn because the one he currently has on file has been altered in some way. This suggests that the original memory stays inside the owner's head after it's been harvested. However... When Snape teaches Harry occlumency so he can keep the Dark Lord out of his mind, he first removes memories for storage in the pensive. Obviously, this suggests that advanced users can remove recollections so they can't be examined by others who are using legitimacy. Dumbledore provides some clarity when he tells Harry, quote, I sometimes find, and I'm sure you know the feeling, that I simply have too many thoughts and memories crammed into my mind. At these times, I use the pensive. One simply siphons the excess thoughts from one's mind, pours them into the basin, and examines them at one's leisure. It becomes easier to spot patterns and links, you understand, when they are in this form. What does this mean? Are memories removed by the tip of a wand truly removed from a person's brain, thus streamlining troubled thoughts? 
Or does removing them for deeper analysis in a pensive free the person from the stress and exertion of trying to recall information through regular means? It's unclear. Perhaps one day Rowling will clarify how this wondrous device functions. Fascinating. It is fascinating. One of my absolute favorite bits of magic in the series. I, well, I do wonder. I, I've well, what is your you, theory? I've always thought that something has to remain. Yes. The, the, obviously, the, S- the Snape lessons are the, the biggest counterpoint to that, as you noted. But my feeling is, how would you know what you wanted to look for? Right. How would you know what you wanted to dive back into if it was completely gone? There must be some print of it. Still. There's got to be some. So if we maybe if, you have a choice, maybe you have a choice between making a copy, in I, essence, and removing it. I think it is that. I think advanced users can, in essence, remove them in some way. But I think even with a removal. The memory that you had a memory is still there. Right. So you remembered that you remembered something. Like you can never fully delete something from a computer. Correct. Like that. Yeah. Like it. Jason. Yes. My dear. Yes. <laughs> you were undoubtedly stimulated by the extraordinary clairvoyant vibrations of this podcast studio. Let's not waste it. Let's split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations beyond the 500 we've already listed in this episode from Goblet. Chapters 27 through 30, because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. You go first. Number one. Even for Oling, master foreshadower that she is, this is delightful. When Hermione, Harry, and Ron are discussing that Witch Weekly article, which I have my subscription to Witch Weekly. (laughs) I hope you do, too. (laughs) We get these two lines and descriptions. A. There's something funny, though, said Hermione, 10 minutes later, holding her pestle suspended over a bowl of scarab beetle. (laughs) How could Rita Skeeter have known? And B, don't be stupid, Hermione snapped, starting to pound up her beetles again. No, it's just, how did she know Victor asked me to visit him over the summer? Having Hermione speculate about Rita's spying technique while crushing beetles, (laughs) the form that Rita's unregistered animagus takes when she transforms to spy, is incredible. Similarly, in the next chapter when Hermione pus into sores covering her gross hands, (laughs) insists again that she wants to know how Rita is listening in on private conversations, Harry says, maybe she had you bugged. Great. Hermione launches into a Hogwarts history lecture about how electricity, electricity doesn't work in the castle. But again, just great work from JK. Rita is, in fact, literally a bug. Just masterful. Number two, the exchange between Ron and Hermione at the end of chapter 27 turns out to be quite prescient. Ron wonders if Percy knows everything Sirius just told them about Crouch and then says, quote, but maybe he doesn't care. It'd probably just make him admire Crouch even more. Yeah, Percy loves rules. He'd just say Crouch was refusing to break them for his own son. Percy would never throw any of his family to the Dementors, said Hermione severely. I don't know, said Ron. If he thought we were standing in the way of his career, Percy's really ambitious, you know. We will soon see how very true this is with Percy siding with the ministry over his family until He rejoins the fold at the Battle of Hogwarts. Similarly, Percy's reply to Ron's owl about Crouch says, quote, no, I haven't actually seen him, but I think I can be trusted to know my own superior's handwriting. Thanks, Weatherby. Couldn't be trusted to tell that he was under the Imperius curse, however. Number three. When Harry, Ron, and Hermione are trying to figure out what happened to Crouch and Crumb, Ron asks if there's any way Snape could have beaten Harry to Dumbledore and Dumbledore to the forest. Not unless he can turn himself into a bat or something, said Harry. Wouldn't put it past him, Ron muttered well. In Hallow, Uh Snape does the next best thing, looking like a bat while flying away from McGonagall. 
Quote, with a tingle of horror, Harry saw in the distance a huge bat-like shape flying through the darkness toward the perimeter wall. Amazing. Number four, when Harry, Ron, and Hermione are writing to Sirius about Crumb and Crouch, they overhear Fred and George entering the Owlery discussing blackmail. When Ron confronts them, George says, you're starting to sound a bit like our dear older brother you are, Ron. Carry on like this and you'll be made a prefect. No, I won't, said Ron hotly. Well, bud, yes, you will. Next summer, in fact, along with Hermione and much to Harry's chagrin. Ron as a prefect is shocking. Wild. So, like, <laughs> what are fucking Seamus and Dean and Neville doing? How we bad know must, Harry didn't how get bad it. must they be? Wild <laughs> bad. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's like, maybe they're like, well, we'd give it to Seamus, but no one understands what the fuck he's saying. <laughs> Number five, at Dumbledore's office, Harry sees the sword of Gryffindor where it presumably will stay until Dumbledore uses it to break the ring and then Snape mm. removes it to give to Harry in secret, in Hallows. Amazing. Number six. <laughs> Many of the most fearsome Death Eaters that we will see in the coming books are introduced in the memories yep. Harry witnesses in the pensive. There's Dalahoff, who will... This is just an overview, not listing every single thing here. But there's Dalahoff, who will escape with Bellatrix and others in order, and is one of the Death Eaters that Harry and co. will face at the battle at the Ministry. He's also one of the Death Eaters who finds Harry, Ron, and Hermione at the cafe after they Man, flee the wedding in Hallows. That cafe Ooh. got fucked up. I'll take your cappuccino. Yeah. And a part of the battle at Hogwarts. Then there's Travers who's also part of the Azkaban breakout and Ministry Battle in Order, is part of the Seven Potters battle, and after escaping from Azkaban again, <laughs> works at the Ministry after it falls under Death Eater control. Travers is also at the Lovegood house when they come to see what's going on with Xenophilius in Hallows and encounters our trio and their friends, slash Gripok, who's not really a friend, but, you know, associates, when they break into Gringotts. We see a lot of Travers. Molesmore is also around at the Ministry Battle, and as noted above, the Rookwood mention is a fabulous Department of Mysteries tease. Rookwood also escapes from Azkaban in order and is a key part of the prophecy plot. He has knowledge that Voldemort needs about who can and cannot touch prophecy, as well as being a participant in the Ministry Battle and the Battle of Hogwarts. And then, of course, there's Bellatrix, who's involved in far too many key moments in the rest of the series to list here. But let's not minimize the impact of our first exposure to this vicious hell demon who will go on to kill Sirius and mother Voldemort's child. Where my cursed child head's at? Not here at this table with me. <laughs> Not canon. Not canon, guys. <laughs> Just kidding. Not even a wide canon. Also, while Crouch notes that Rogier, Terry, <laughs> while Evan Rogier is dead, Vinda Rogier, a noted supporter of Grindelwald, looks poised to be a big character in the upcoming Fantastic Beasts movie. We might not be finished learning about that family. Number seven, last. In which weekly, which I read your favorite religiously. Your favorite publication. Listen, here's the thing. I think it's thing. fair to say. I want to just say this. I would, if which weekly really existed, I would fucking read which weekly. And you, I know you would. I absolutely would be like, oh For my. the recipes? <laughs> Listen, I'd be like, Phenomenal <laughs> moment when or when Mrs. Weasley sends the Easter candy and Harry and Ron get those giant eggs full of toffee and Hermione gets a tiny one and she's like, Ron, does your mom read Witch Weekly? <laughs> In Witch Weekly, Rita Skeeter quotes Pansy Parkinson as speculating that Hermione attracted Harry with a love potion. Did Romilda Vane read this and take it as advice when she whipped up a batch for Harry and Prince, which Ron accidentally ingests? <sighs> oh, Rough. Just 
one of many tough things for Ron. Many, many like accidental poisonings that happen in that book, which are vicious and bad. Got to guzzle that poisoned mead after your love potions out of your veins. Mal, he's screaming for his mother by nightfall. He went quiet after a few days, though. They all went quiet in the end, except when they shrieked in their sleep. And except for today's champion, every episode we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to... Sirius, the Godfather Black. Yes. Makes his way back into Harry's life. The letters have been nice, but Sirius is back in Hogsmeade to keep a closer eye on Harry and perform his godfatherly duties. Including providing absolutely crucial Crucial. crucial, crucial information on Barty Crouch's past during the first Wizarding War. Guess he eat chicken and bread? Delicious. Mm. Love that pumpkin juice. Ooh. He's crucially one of the few adults who sees the rising threats, who really is properly concerned about everything that's happening. And as such, he's warning Harry to stay close to his friends, practice his defense skills. He's being, in other words, a really good godfather. Has been communicating with Dumbledore, as we'll learn, and working hard to protect Harry in the in the background there. He walks around in dog form with the newspaper in his mouth. Precious. Which is extremely cute. And yes, it's the Daily Prophet, but... <laughs> The guy's on the road, and he needs to get information somehow. It's very sweet. Like, he's willing to live in filth and squalor for Harry. Wouldn't you be like, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, if you're trying to, like, stay low pro, walking around with newspapers in your mouth <laughs> as a dog is, I'm sorry, but I'm going to look at that. Yeah. I'll be like, wait. You might, you might glance at it a second time if you saw that. And then, of course, Sirius drops a important bit of wisdom on the kids. Yeah. He says, if you want to know what a man's like, take a good look at how he treats his inferiors not his equals. It is painful, always painful, to think back on this line in terms of Sirius's personal shortcomings regarding how he treats Creature, a huge part of Order of the Phoenix. But the advice is maybe all the more poignant because of that. It's Ned Stark-level poignancy with that line. Well, friends, must be nice to have so many podcasts you don't notice if a whole feed full of them goes missing. Thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee. Zach Cram, our indispensable producer and researcher who are currently on vacation, having vanished from our lives like human leprechaun gold. I didn't know you could disapparate from the, <laughs> the, the podcast <laughs> studio. <laughs> Thanks to Evan Campbell for filling in ably in their stead. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you were as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you'll join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing chapters 31 through 34 of Goblet of Fire and probably screaming and weeping the entire time. Until then, remember, if you're talking about us amongst yourselves, call us Snuffles, okay? That's right. And next, I call Ludovic Bagman to stand trial for passing information to the followers of Voldemort. What the? Quiet in the courtroom, please. (laughs) Ludo, you have been accused of passing information that has helped Voldemort. What do you say? Hey, man, like it was like a fucking accident. (laughs) Let him go. Ludo. Be quiet. Can I have your autograph? Quiet in this courtroom. Please. Many have died because of the infant. Oh, boo! Boo! Winborn was! Winborn was! Winborn was! <laughs> <laughs>